Today we have a very special guest, one of my favourite authors, Angus Donald, who's the best-selling author of The Outlaw Chronicles, a series of 10 novels featuring a gangsterish Robin Hood. Angus has also written the absolutely fabulous Holcroft Blood trilogy about a mildly autistic 17th century English artillery officer, son of the notorious crown jewels thief Colonel Thomas Blood and three of the best books I've ever read. And I think I did put that in the review, Angus. His latest series, the Fireborn series, is set in 8th century Central Europe, following the exploits of Bjarke. Is that how I pronounce it? I'm not sure, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've always said Bjarke, but I don't speak um, Old Norse, and nor even any modern sort of Danish or, or Swedish. So I've always said Bjarke, but I have no idea. I had a, a, someone who corrected me on another pronunciation. He's he lived, an English guy who lives in Sweden. He said, you don't pronounce it like this, it's pronounced like that. So I'm I'm now very wary of of, of saying how things should be pronounced <laughs> because I don't speak any of those languages, sadly. Yeah, let's call him Bjarki. Bjarki Bloodhand. Right. You see, I had this issue with Matthew Harfey as well because of the way he pronounces his characters. And it's like, when you're talking about 7th century and 8th century, it's like, we haven't a clue. Nobody's got it recorded, have they? It's not on tape. No, no, no. no. If you don't know, Angus, we don't care. Really. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome, Angus. So, your series is set in Saxon Germany in the 8th century. What inspired you to write about that era and place? Um, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I forgot to say that. It's, it's great to be on this on the show. Why 8th century Germany? I came to it by a, a slightly weird set of reasons, because I discovered the Great Wall of Denmark when I was I was thinking about doing a Viking thing. I was thinking about doing a sort of Norse Viking-y thing. And I came across the, the Great Wall of Denmark, which is a earthwork, sort of about 20 foot high with a big wooden fence on top that went straight across, right the way across the bottom of the Jutland Peninsula. It's basically a huge 20 mile, actually it's 10 mile long wall because there are bits of, of river and bog and stuff, but it's a barrier that cuts off Denmark from Germany. And I was fascinated by this because I'd never heard of it. And this is about uh, three or four years ago. And I started looking at it and it, and I came up with a sort of idea that basically these earthworks are very interesting because they not only kind of are defensive um, mechanisms, you know, they're walls, they're, they're fortifications, but they also demarcate nationality. And you get the same thing with, for example, Hadrian's Wall. You know, if there hadn't been a Hadrian's Wall, the line between Scotland and England would have been a lot more vague. The borders were always a bit, still a bit sort of wishy-washy. So it might have extended this way or that way. But by by having a big wall across it, you create Scotland and you also create England. A similar thing happened with Offa's Dyke. 
between England and Wales. Yeah. And so to find one in in Scandinavia or sort of North Germany was fascinating. So I started reading about it and I realised that it was used to keep the Saxons out of Denmark and then actually the Franks, who were Christians, who under Charlemagne conquered Saxony. And I started reading about this 30-year war which took place at the end of the 8th century and the first few years of the of the 9th century when the french christians basically franks conquered by force saxony and killed everybody who didn't they they basically baptized people at the point of a sword you know will you do you accept the faith of jesus christ or shall i kill you you know that sort of thing <laughs> and and i thought this was fascinating and it slotted in with the time when I was thinking about writing about Vikings. So I thought these Saxons were pagans. They they worshipped Woden and um, Thunor and basically Odin, Thor, and all the other Norse gods. It were pretty much they spoke of pretty much the same as the Danes, who were their great allies. So the Saxons and the Danes were great allies. And during these wars, the Danes fought with the Saxons against the Franks. So you've got Danes at the almost just before the Viking Age, fighting with Saxons against Christians. And it seemed to me, it seemed to me that this is quite an interesting way to, to write Viking novels because it's just before, it's actually the, technically the Vendel period, but it's just before the official start, if you like, and the official start of the Viking Age, which is the um, um, attack on Lindisfarne in... 794. 794, yeah. I haven't got to that bit because that, that's out of my time period. <laughs> so something like in the 790-something. And that's when people say well this is when vikings officially start and this is 20 years earlier <laughs> but of course they were the same people yeah they're using the same technology the same boats the same battle weapons um same gods same culture same society so why did why are they suddenly vikings after this point and not before and i thought okay well, let's just call them vikings or let's just think of them as vikings and the saxons also believed in the same gods, fought in shield walls with axes and, you know, and swords and round shields and stuff. So I, I thought this is an interesting way to to approach a Viking novel. I like to write books that are sort of, I don't know what, I think it's something to do with some flaw in my character, <laughs> but I never approach things straight on. Uh, I always do something and then just go slightly off. So, for example, my Robin Hood isn't a good guy. He's a gangster. I've got this English artilleryman and I made him autistic because it just makes it slightly more interesting <laughs> to have to have a kind of like, mm. not to just do, no disrespect to all the other people who are writing about Vikings, but they tend to be rather samey. And it's like, here's a young boy and he's got, he joins a Viking band and then there's some revenge and that sort of stuff. Whereas if you make it slightly different where there's actually a war going on and he's brought in to fight against a huge army of christians who are much more powerful than his small group of people then it's much more interesting so it's it was basically my my usual trick of taking a subject and then slightly kind of going at a different angle than everybody else to try and make it stand out try and make my work stuff stand out also because it interests me sorry that was a very long answer to a very simple question no a very good answer though and it's nice i mean i find it i did actually find it quite refreshing though it was in germany because i'm there thinking oh it's Vikings, but different because <laughs> we are very Anglo-centric in our study of Vikings. That's what that's the word I was groping for, <laughs> Anglo-centric. I, I was trying to think about. Yeah, we do, and, and and actually, even I mean, I keep buying books. I bought one called The Wolf Age, and it's supposed to be talking about Viking stuff, but it's basically all about Vikings in England. Mm. And and also, when you read, try and get books about Saxons, it's always about Saxons in England. And actually, there's so much more interesting stuff going on 
in Saxony during this period and in Scandinavia, but I guess we just don't get it. Or perhaps they're not translated into English. They're in Danish or in Swedish or in German. And I can't read any of those languages. But Anglocentric is quite right, yeah. That was my next question. How hard is it, given that you're writing about Germany in the 8th century, how hard is it to research the period? Was there a lot of sources in English? No, uh, there's one. There's one source which is the which is in Latin, uh, which well, there's, there's a, a little bit more, but but there's one main source which is called the Royal Frankish Annals, and it's written from Charlemagne's point of view, and it's it's really spare, like all of these things, and it's totally pro-Christian and pro-Charlemagne because it's written by his own monks who relied upon him for their you know stipends, and it describes the, the Saxons as awful pagans and you know dreadful people and you know the worst kind of evilness because they were non-Christian. So you have to kind of take that with a pinch of salt. And I and the fact the second book in the series, the Saxon Wolf, I I wrote the entire book, which is a which is basically the campaign in. Saxony or one two years worth of campaign based on about two paragraphs three paragraphs from the royal frankish annals in latin which someone had translated into english i read the english translation but mm. it's very spare it's like the king went here and fought a battle and slew the saxons and then he went here charlemagne went here and fought a battle and routed the saxons and then he went over here and killed these saxons and it's like it's just it's three paragraphs of stuff, and I and I use that to reconstruct an entire novel out of that. So to answer your question again, I'm being very difficult here, no answering your questions. But to answer your question is the sources are very scant. There are very few of them, but you can extrapolate from what you have got to have a sort of idea of when things happened and in what order and who was there. And you have the names of the of the Saxon warlords and then you kind of create a character for them. And then you've got, you know, that so-and-so went there and then they sacked this monastery and burnt it. And you can do a scene about that. So scant stuff. But I also use, I don't know whether this is preempting another question, but the the the, the theme is berserkerness um, in all of these books because, which is, which I've, taken to mean being possessed by an animal spirit usually a bear or a wolf and i've written a whole sort of mythology into the novels about this and that the idea of how do you know what it's like to be possessed by a bear and turn ferocious i got from my time as an anthropologist in indonesia in the 1980s when i was studying spirit possession i'd go to ceremonies where people regularly were possessed by the spirits of either gods or demons or evil monsters and they would become possessed and they would actually act, they were completely convinced that they were Arjuna the warrior prince or that they were an evil witch and they would behave in inside the temple it usually took place inside temples with with a lot of gamelan music a lot of evocative music so having spent time studying spirit possession I felt I had a fairly good idea of what it might have been like to believe in this so so strongly that you believe that the spirit of a bear was coming inside you as a berserker and then turning you into this ferocious bear warrior. So there's a there's not very much in the historical sense, but I used a lot of my own experience of this psychological state to inform the novels um, and Bjarki Blood and the Berserker. So yeah, so not a lot of historical stuff, but a lot of stuff with maps and a lot of reading about how Vikings or Saxons and I'm I'm using the two terms interchangeably Saxons, I think 
Saxons were the same as Vikings. A bit more horses, that's all really. Same gods and that kind of thing. So use all that good stuff we have about Vikings and then sort of put it onto the Saxons. Yeah, I mean, in your historical notes at the end of uh, The Last Berserker, you refer to historical fiction as a blend of history and invention and what you've just described is exactly that isn't it where you yeah you have the bare bones of some history but of course you can't write you can't write a novel with just the bare bones so the invention comes in there and you bring as you have a lot of yourself into it as well of other experiences so so i think for me it worked extremely well oh thank you i quite like the the school for berserkers idea, the kind of Hogwarts for berserkers, which which I thought was amazing. I, I thought it was a very, very, very good invention and, and exactly the an example of, of what you mean by, by inventing something, which makes the novel a bit different when you spoke earlier about how do you make another novel about Vikings, like sort of Vikings, Jim, but not as we know it. You know, it's sort yes. of a, a little bit different. And I think you've certainly succeeded there. I think it's a, it's an excellent blend. Of, of history and and invention well thank you i mean the other thing with that school the i mean i hate the term hogwarts for vikings but it, 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 that's what people have been calling it one some guy wrote wrote a scathing review saying company was so ridiculous hogwarts for vikings what a ridiculous idea so i don't <laughs> like that but but let's call it a, let's call it a school i mean you know the, the idea of a cult center where they believe you know cult bear cults were very strong and so wolf cults and, they, and to have them in this place because the the world tree of both Saxon and Viking culture. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they believe that the world was shaped like a tree and at the top you've got a kind of heaven and at the bottom you've got a freezing hell and and the and the middle realm is in the middle of the tree. And so they sort of they sort of saw the world and our our place in it, humans place in it as a tree and they're supposed to they're supposed to have found the site of the original tree which was a <laughs> massive oak tree in Saxony. In the very place that I have, so so there was supposed to have been a big tree there, and Charlemagne cut it down. So he, in the second book, he goes there and he cuts down the tree. And actually, what happened is that straight afterwards, they built a church on top of it in order to kind of nullify the pagan yeah. evilness. Yeah. And there's still a church on it, and it's I think it's um, I've, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's I think St Peter and St Paul actually is. It, and there's a church there. They, they, it was a wooden one to start with, and then they turned it into a stone church, and it's still on the site. So we think this is where the world tree was in North Germany, which was venerated by both the Saxons and the Vikings. And I thought it'd be fantastic to set this Hogwarts, if you like, um, this bear cult place on the on the site it's also a very easily defensible what should be easy they 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 don't defend it very well but <laughs> it's a sort of outcropping from the plain from a valley and it's flat topped and it's this sort of place that's natural for a um for a, a fortress or a you know defensible position with a tree growing out the top of it so it's just such <laughs> a weird such a weird geographical feature it's almost kind of fantasy like actually yeah but but when you come across something like that you just have to use it yeah I mean, yeah <laughs> it's it's too tempting to avoid really yes quite, quite. <laughs> i love a good tree <laughs> <laughs> so when you're putting together the the history and the invention in in the case of say the first one the last berserker where did you struggle where what, what were the difficulties of doing that did you find the most difficult thing is that berserkers didn't live very long uh basically they go do lally <laughs> and charge not very well armed well they've got a bear skin on and charge into the middle of the enemy shield wall 
and sometimes break through and, and but most but they would have taken such horrific injuries because humans don't re- react well to <laughs> spears and axes <laughs> and stuff and no matter how crazy you are there's still some guy who can shoot you with an arrow so the the most difficult thing is making it believable and exciting but he's got to get injured and he, he and in fact it's beginning to come get a bit boring because at the end of every book he almost dies <laughs> he almost <laughs> dies from his wounds but somehow doesn't just die and he manages to carry on and in the next book he's got another battle to fight so kind of getting that yes yeah. getting that thing happening is is i'm, I'm now i've finished book four i'm about to start writing book five i've got to think of a way for him not to get injured every time because no human being could actually i've, I've got him covered in scars yeah but, you know, I know it's still <laughs> You know, I mean, and the truth is, the truth about medieval warriors, which I'm sure you both know, is that they probably would only fight one or two battles in their entire lives. So, you know, if you were a knight or a, um, I think you do post-Roman, don't you, Derek? Uh, yeah, I did. I've done a yeah. post-Roman. Series, I mean, you, yeah. you still would only um, have one big battle in your life, probably or two. But as historical novelists, yeah. We kind of kind of need <laughs> we kind of need more than one. Otherwise, it'd be a very short series. I know. Yeah, difficult. I've forgotten what the question was. What was the most difficult thing? Yeah, it was basically making it believable him getting all these injuries and then surviving. So I so there's a quasi there's a quasi magical element. I mean, it is still historical fiction, but he believes very strongly that he has this bear spirit inside him and. When he gets better, he he attributes it to the sort of bear helping him. And when he gets extra strength to carry on fighting, he thinks it's the bear giving him the strength and that sort of thing. So it's that yeah. quasi-psychological stroke magical stuff. I mean, I don't... I try not to have anything that isn't physically possible. I mean, he can't fly or anything, you know. Um, but but um, he does have an awful lot of manic energy, put it that way. I love the way he actually feels no. about it as well when he comes out of it he's not proud of himself for having done it he he knows he's lost control well i i have this very i mean it doesn't happen very often now but uh, when I was younger, I sometimes got into physical fights with people, and uh, I had I had a rather sort of wild early adulthood. Um, but I would I, after I'd fought somebody, I'd always burst into tears, um, which is incredibly bad, particularly if you've won. You know, <laughs> 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 anyway, the other guys on the ground, you're still standing. And you're and you're weeping, and your tears are running down your face, and everyone's going, "What's the matter with him? He won, you know." But I used to get this incredible sort of burst of uh, of adrenaline, and and the aftermath of that was was tears and self disgust and all of that kind of stuff. So I was trying to incorporate that in. I mean, I've never been obviously, in, actually, I have been in a battle, but that I didn't fight in it. I was just watching it in Afghanistan when I was a war correspondent. But um, but when you're in physical combat, there's a I found. Um, that there was a huge emotional release at the end of it when you've won and it's over. And and I used to burst into tears. So I try and do that for, with Bjarki because I imagine it's like, you know, a hundred times more uh, powerful for him than for me in my little after the pub fist fights. <laughs> <laughs> so we covered a lot about the Berserker bit, but what I found was with the Berserker school, you have, Bjarki does discover his inner wrecker. But Tor doesn't. Yeah. And even though she's the one who is desperate to become a berserker, she never finds it. And Bjarki is the one who wasn't really sure he wanted to. Yeah. 
Um, I've, I've treated um, Tor very badly, I think. In the, I mean, she doesn't she doesn't get to be a berserker, and she never mm. will, because you can't have two berserkers. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, there's got to be one of them who's a berserker. And she's already a very accomplished warrior, but she desperately wants this, and she can't get there, and she never will. And the other thing she wants is, is a man... Um, and she's never going to get one of those either. So I have treated well. I, I should nev- never say never because I, I I feel I feel an obligation to give her some joy. And she has a sort of surrogate child. I don't know how far along in the series you've got, but she gets a kind of surrogate daughter. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Oh, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> so there is, a, there is, a, um, there is some, you know, there's some satisfaction for her. But she, but I feel really sorry for her. But I, I also love her very much because she's such a, such an interesting character. She's so spiky and rude and and awkward and uncomfortable in herself. She's a bit like me sometimes, you know. I mean, all all characters take a little bit of yourself, of course. But yeah, but yeah. she's kind of she kind of like can't take a compliment. She can't she can't allow herself to be happy. She can't be cool or calm. She's always kind of jostling and and awkward and spiky and rude and then yeah. bristling with with anger and then sort of resentful. You know, she's just like a really uncomfortable woman, uncomfortable in her own skin. But it makes her, I think, an interesting character to, yeah. to spend time Definitely. with. Definitely, as long as you wouldn't. Have, I, mean, I don't know if you'd be much fun to actually be with. But <laughs> I wrote the word spiky down. Yeah. Actually. Actually, I was when I was going to ask you about that because I'm a great fan of spiky female yeah, characters, yeah. and I found it interesting that uh, in the relationship between Bjarki and Tor, he's the sort of gentle giant, and she's the grumpy one. Yes, <laughs> sometimes it's the other way around. But uh, she, uh, yeah, you have been yeah. a bit unkind to her. But but having been down that road myself, I, I think that's not a problem. <laughs> I think it creates a very interesting character. Yeah, I mean. I... I, I kind of need to find some happiness for her at some point, just because it's just, you know, it's just unfair. But I, I don't think she can be a berserker. I, it, it, for the just for the dynamics of the novel, it works if one is and one isn't. And she's she's a very accomplished warrior, and you know, and mm. kind of cleverer than much cleverer than Bjarki. Bjarki's not all that bright. <laughs> he's a bit he's a bit stupid. He's kind of like well intentioned and bumbling and yeah. No, but she's really sharp. She knows immediately what's going on. So she's got other great qualities, but she she can never really be a berserker because perhaps perhaps being a berserker uh, requires submission, mm. a bit like the sort of um, Islamic sense that that in order to know God, you have to submit yourself to to God. That was that was one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing the character. Submission is something that I can't imagine Tor ever doing. But, <laughs> no. you know. But Bjarki's kind of much more happy, confident with that sort of with that sort of allowing things to happen to him, whereas Tor not at all. <laughs> no, that's true. So, do you identify with Bjarki? A bit, but also with Tor, you know, and with Valtir as well. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, I suppose because Bjarki's a man. And and everybody, I was always considered rather stupid as a child and a young man, and and by my family particularly, and my people at the school and stuff. Everyone thought I was completely thick, and I knew I wasn't. But I it was trying to persuade people otherwise. It's too much like hard work, so I just kind of let it go. And perhaps I am really thick. I don't know. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 um, but uh, but I mean, I kind of I, I that's one of the things that I'm very resentful about is that everybody wrote me off as a moron, um, and I'm not. You know, uh, it's very difficult got to say i'm not a moron (laughs) (laughs) 
so you were but, misunderstood yeah. as a child. Absolutely, yes. All the best writers are, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but your books can speak for you because the amount of research in them and the storytelling skills, it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> You've got to have something that drives you, haven't you? You've got to have a... Yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah. It's a different from different people but you know yeah as you say that if you're a writer i think it has to come from inside and uh certain things are driving certain people to answer your question yes i do identify a bit as biaki because i've got a temper as well and there's one there was one episode there was one time when i i kind of first got the idea i was a, living as a beach bum in crete when i was 18 i lived on the beach in Crete for a year. I had a fantastic time. I didn't have any money. Um, I sort of robbed greenhouses for a few tomatoes for supper. And I did bits of work as well. I did a lot of labouring work, lifting cement bags and building stuff and like one or two days a week. And the rest of the time I was just hanging out on the beach and having a terrific time. <laughs> and I, I shared a flat with a good friend of mine and we were kind of play wrestling, just, you know, we were 18 year old fit guys and we were just kind of messing around. And I pinned him down and he bit me. And I completely lost it and grabbed his head and started smashing it against the stone floor and knocked him unconscious. And I and I recognised in that, I mean, I could have killed him, but I did, obviously I didn't. He had a big bruise on his head, but, you know, and he bit me and he deserved it. <laughs> but but I, I, suddenly, I suddenly had an inkling of what it must be like to be a berserker when suddenly you snap and you could, I mean, you know, that is a tiny, tiny example of me play wrestling with a friend and losing it and banging his head on the ground. But in that little instant, I recognised that spark in me, perhaps in every other human being, of red rage, you know, just incandescent rage and I thought and I kept that it's a memory for 35 years or something mm. and thought one day I'm going to use that and it actually that's probably the origin of the berserker books that just that one moment when I suddenly realized that I was capable of killing this guy and actually I wanted to kill him for about a second and a half and then I get to my senses you know and you know sometimes you get I've had it a couple of times, just sort of absolute rage, and then it and then it goes. But if if that was sustained over an hour, <laughs> you could do a lot of damage to a shield wall. I think, especially if somebody put an axe in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, sharp object. Well, yes, yes, yes. Keep the axe away from me. So, uh, do you? We've, you've said you sort of identify with several characters. Do you have a favourite character in this in the series? I quite like Holcroft Blood. Oh, sorry, in this series. No, in this series, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, Tor, actually, I think. Yeah. I mean, Bjarke's kind of a bit one note. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of, you know, he's kind and he's big and he's dull and he's a nice guy and then he goes absolutely ape shit but that's all he does whereas whereas Tor with her tortured kind of an inability to be happy an inability to be herself or or to find any kind of peace I find her interesting mm. as well so I really like her uh, unfortunately, I just keep, as I was saying, keep making things more difficult for every book. Um, no, I do. I love her very much. I really do. But yeah. it's just, you know, it's just, it's, if I if I then have a kind of finding a nice guy and settling down, having some babies, having a lovely time, is there's no story, you know? There's, there's, you know? No, no, no. She doesn't think you like her. I'll tell you that. And she does get one at, at the end of. 
I can't remember which book it is, but she gets one eventually and it's boring and then she doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and she doesn't want that either because, I mean, I just read, you know, when Bjarke was talking about getting a piece of land, a farm, and she's like, that's her worst nightmare. <laughs> she's saying, I don't want to spend my entire life in the back of beyond, you know, getting stones out of the ground and, and raising a yeah. meagre crop of barley. What's the point of that in it? So she kind of like, it's her own worst enemy. But I think she's the one, she's my favourite character. She's the one I'm most proud of creating. I have a soft spot for Garm, the bear. Yes. Oh yeah, he's very sweet. He's gorgeous. Um, I, love, I, I want to, I want an enclosure in the back garden and a bear. Well, yeah, you, he's he's kind of a little bit dangerous. Like, I mean, if he, the way that he is with, with Bjarki and Tor is great because they can cuddle him and sort of snuggle up to him and stuff, and yeah. that's how you, that's what you want from a big bear. I think he eats a stable boy in one of the. One of the yeah, um, I've just read that scene where Bjarki goes to Lord Brun and apologizes for the fact that Garm ate his servant. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I thought I was laughing when I wrote. It. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the and the guy's completely cool about it. Lord, whatever, is completely cool about it. Yeah, because <laughs> so he's only a fraud. But don't let him do it again. <laughs> yes, don't, don't do it again. <laughs> let this be a warning. <laughs> but no, yeah, Garm is great. I love the fact that there is that kind of humour in the book as well. <laughs> Well, I do. I sometimes write jokes into books. I I do it, and then I realise I probably shouldn't do that because it undermines the seriousness of it. But I do quite like it when you've got a you've got a joke once in a while. We're not all serious all the time, no. are we? So even quite, in Hogwarts, yes, yeah. you're going to have banter. yes, that's true. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, even when lots of people, you know, I mean, particularly, I mean, if, I think if you you look at sort of the trenches of the First World War or the Second World War, the, you know, the the, yeah. the soldiers were endlessly making kind of black gallows humour jokes. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that mm -hmm. sort of black humor in yeah. in um in warfare i remember once um in one of my first books alan dale and his eventual wife goody are being attacked by wolves and i think it's alan says remember they're more frightened of us than we are of them and they both just start laughing because <laughs> completely untrue yeah <laughs> <They're not. laughs> Yeah, yeah, they don't look it. Yeah. No, I think my my favourite character is Tor as well because you know, I, I, as I said, I've got a thing for spiky, spiky women characters. Yeah, you've got a thing for spiky women characters who have every challenge in the book thrown at them. So yeah, I can see you. Already. Well, yeah, but I I wonder. It did occur to me while we were talking whether you you and I, Angus, have what have something in common that we are both men, uh, and as far as I'm aware, I'm sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we, I don't know, do women write those sort of characters for women? To be honest, I think it's very difficult to write women well as a man. I I've, I struggle. In fact, a lot of my, in the first sort of books I was writing, the Robin Hood books, I, I had hardly any women. I didn't really know how to do them. And I I had token girlfriends and wives. Uh, they mm. kind of like didn't really do anything. They sort of said, you know, they were just beautiful and stood there and didn't really have much agency. And I I kind of knew that it wasn't good, but I couldn't work out how to do it. And I began to get a bit better, but it but it's a difficult thing to learn. I think Tor is the best woman I've created, though I did have quite a, a good bad woman in the end of the Robin Hood books who was seducing people and then, you know, betraying them. And, and she was she was fun because she was just like completely. <laughs> and I realised that she behaved exactly like a man. Yeah, I guess that's what I was what I was sort of angling at in a way is, I mean, what I did with my spiky woman, Eleanor, was 
I was I gave her a sister who was sort of the the opposite. So there was a kind of uh, there was a, there was a norm, as it were. <laughs> this is a normal woman <laughs> of that period, yeah. And this isn't, um, yeah. But it is difficult. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the problem with with writing, I, I'm, I'm Sharon. I'm sure you'll recognise this as well about medieval women. Is that there's not very much. There's not. I mean, Nicola de la Haye is a is a is a good example because she's like a you know independent, strong woman, Castilian of the castle, and you know. But there aren't a lot of women. Don't appear very much in the in the stories, except as mm. wives or pawns or mothers or or queens like Anne of Aquitaine, perhaps. But they're not very many because most of the times they were drudges and they had a pretty miserable time. I mean, the, you know, the, this is a time when you could basically kidnap someone and say, right, we're married yeah. now. Um, and there wasn't really a lot. You know, you had to depend on your male relatives to come and rescue you. And even they would be reluctant because once you've been uh, kidnapped and presumably raped, you know, nobody wants you back. So yeah. it's, kind of, it's, it's like a it's not a great time for women. No, you know, being a medieval woman must be one of a poor medieval woman. But even even the rich ones, we mm. focus on Eleanor of Aquitaine and Nicola de la Haye. That's like you know less than one percent. And even the aristocratic women would have been traded like cattle, pretty much, in order to make alliances and and to cement relationships. The best hope for any woman in those days was for her husband to die first. Yeah, because once you were a widow. Yes, because as a widow, you had so much power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to pay the king to stay widowed before he married you off to someone else. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But once you were a widow, you had your lands and you had your money. You could do what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suspect there were a lot more widows than you might think, except for the danger of childbirth. Men were getting killed in battles and diseases and caught up in political machinations and beheaded. And so, you know, so they were probably, and also they tended to marry slightly younger women or sometimes considerably younger women and then they would have died off you know earlier as a result so there probably were a lot more widows around than than we think at that at that time mm -hmm. There's one, I think, Isabella of Gloucester, who was the first wife of King John. Yeah. After Geoffrey de Mandeville, her second husband, died, she signs a charter in my free widowhood. Ah, interesting. Okay, yeah. Unfortunately, she's then forced to marry Hubert de Burgh. Oh, right, yeah. But for a moment, she's happy. In, <laughs> in my free widowhood. That's a lovely expression. Yeah. Actually, I should have some... I think I might need to get a widow in my next one. <laughs> <laughs> who's very happy to stay a widow <laughs> very happily happily widowed yeah. yeah widows are good Widow, widows give you a, a different sort of female character yeah actually that's yeah that's a good point Right, so last question. If there was a TV series made of the Fireborn book, who do you imagine playing Bjarki? Well, I'm not very good at actors because the ones that I remember are sort of a bit past their sell-by. So Sean Bean, <laughs> you know, Sean Bean, I thought was terrific and sharp. I think he'd make a fantastic Bjarki, but he's too old. You know, he's now six. Sean Bean 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, Sean Bean, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I do like, I did see The Northman. Um, recently, and that's got Alexander Skarsgård, who's who's like seriously, he's kind of like buff and and mm -hmm. good looking. So I think he'd be rather good, Bjarki. Though it needs to be someone not quite as handsome. I don't think Bjarki's terribly handsome. I think he's kind of like a big slab of blonde muscle, mm -hmm. and you know, he's kind of a sort of Terminator type <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, but but with blonde hair. <laughs> um, I, the answer is. I, I, I don't know because I don't know who the current crop of, of twenty something actors are, and often they haven't made their name. Um, and in fact, the ones who 
who are famous tend to be the sort of pretty ones like um mm-hmm. timothy chalamet or so they haven't really got beefcake guys um which is what biarki would be he'd be like very intimidating and huge and a sort of russell crowe but two foot taller mm-hmm. and again you know 30 years younger i don't know i mean i I, I I try not to think about TV yeah. because it, I, it gets me so upset that nobody's doing it. But you know, <laughs> well, there's so much bad TV being made. It's such a lot of terrible. I mean, I you know I, I, every night I look at Netflix and Amazon Prime and I struggle to find something that's watching. And then I do watch it and I know it's a mediocre thing. And even I mean, I've been watching a Viking ish thing recently, and it's not very good. You know, it's like kind of the dialogue's wooden. The whole thing looks ridiculous. It's, it's stagey and bad. And even the Northman, which I saw recently, I I thought was unremittingly yeah. bleak. Do you, I don't know if either of you have seen that, but so it's, it's a it's the story of Amleth, which is where we get the Hamlet story. A guy whose uncle kills mm. his father, marries his mother, and it's the sort of Hamlet origin story. But it's but it's unremittingly bleak, and it's a, a vision of Vikings in the north as a place of endless brutal hideous terror and i don't think that any society can actually be like that i thought that was it got the headlines for its brutality and its nastiness and but actually all human beings have moments as we were talking before about jokes and laughter and all that kind of thing all human beings have to have some light and relief so they have love and games and jokes and riddles and you know fun stuff as well as fighting and revenge and all of those things and if you have this guy who's who Mm. just goes you know on this journey of hideous suffering all the way through either he's suffering or he's making other people suffer doesn't seem like it doesn't seem very authentic at all Mm. and then dies in the end spoiler alert long-winded answer to your question i don't really know who would play it um who would play I have no idea who played Tor. Mm. Uh, it would be it would be quite difficult, I think, to cast them. And if and someone else would do it, it wouldn't be me. It'd be whoever was me. And I probably wouldn't like their choice. Mm. And I probably wouldn't like what they've done with the script. Hopefully, I would like the money. <laughs> I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a TV guy. I write novels and try and keep putting them out. And then maybe somebody will make a movie of them or TV of them, or maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. It's like Bernard Cornwell says, isn't it? When the sharp books were turned into a series and then Uhtred is like, you have to let it go. Yeah. You, you know, you have to say, yeah. yep, the books were mine, but the TV isn't <laughs> because they do it so differently. You can't just sit there and go, mm. oh, I wouldn't have done that. No, I don't like that. You've just got to let it go and let them get on with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right attitude. I was watching, I listened to the reunion on Radio 4 the other day, which was about the making of the Sharp um, series and how incredibly difficult it was. And they shot in Crimea and they mm. had things went wrong and they ran out of water and they were all dying of thirst and they they were menaced by the Russian mafia and it was a litany of disasters and so I went back last night and I watched the first episode of Sharp and it's still not very good you know I mean I enjoyed them at the time but it's shoddy the acting's terrible the actually the dialogue is quite good the writing's quite good but the but you know, you've got 20 people marching along and they say, you know, the 5th Division is 20 guys. And you're thinking, hang on a second, that's not even a platoon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're calling it a division of 5,000 people. Yeah. And, of course, extras are expensive. But it just looks cheap and crappy. <laughs> and <laughs> and you can get away with it on board ship because you've got very tight angles. Yeah. But when you're filming a big battle, mm, um, yeah. I mean, now you can do it, I guess, with CGI. But when you've got, yeah. you need to see thousands of people all crashing up against each other. And when they yeah. and then when they swipe at each other with their swords, it's so clear that they're not actually hitting them. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a sort of stage mm, punch. Yeah. <laughs> I must say, I watched the Last Kingdom film, Seven Kings Must Die, at the weekend, and I thought the battle they did 
did at the end, um, the Battle of Brunanburh, I thought that was really well done and they did get enough people into it. I thought it was good, quite good, except they had every cliche in the book, Caltrops. Oh, yeah. I wondered if that Caltrops was a just a nod to Sharp, because that's where I learned about Caltrops. <laughs> me too, me too. That's where I got Caltrops from. I'd never heard of them until then. <laughs> and then they got the logs being tugged between two horsemen, which is straight out of Spartacus. Yeah. And then they had the, the feigned retreat. I don't know why they did that. I don't, they, they retreated to get them on the Caltrops. That was a little too obvious for me, but... <laughs> it, it was kind of like, it was, it was a bit kind of, I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed it, you know. So uh, it was the numbers as well, though. You could you could actually see it as a battle because they did have a yeah. decent number of people on each side. If it had been sharp, there'd be three people. <laughs> yeah. you know. And they'd be joining the, joining the end of the queue and going around <laughs> <on> again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, with early medieval battle, you are looking at three or 400 people on either side most of the time. It's just when you get to the Napoleonic and you've got armies of 100,000 on either side. Yes, I'm, I'm writing um, Mongol stuff at the moment and I've suddenly realised that there's no way they can ever they can ever film this. <laughs> the horde. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Angus. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure. I've, I've, I've enjoyed myself enormously. We haven't <laughs> laughed so much for ages. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, uh, for a very entertaining morning. <laughs> and if you haven't read any of Angus's books, or you've only read the Outlaw books or the Holcroft Blood books, give Fireborn and Bjarki a go, because they are absolutely fabulous. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Sharon. Thank you, Derek. And ho- hopefully I'll catch up with you at some point. Yes, yes. Well, next time we're having some sort of jamboree for the one of our historical societies, hopefully. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much indeed. And see you, see you both soon, I hope. OK, then. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Angus. Right. So our next podcast will feature our very own Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I shall be asking her about her brand new book on Nicola de la Haye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of A Slice of Medieval. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. Mm-hmm.